This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. How's your Wednesday going? Good to be catching up with you. And shortly you are going to find out how you might jump onto the global plant protein market. Now, you know, that section in the supermarket, you know, the area that has those things like so-called sausages that are made from lentils, that section is rapidly expanding. You would have seen it for yourself. So what should you be growing right now to try and be part of this particular market? And exactly how much wool is stored around Australia right now as growers sort of hold off from selling their wool at the moment because the demand is so low. You know how the retail sector has been hit by COVID-19. There's just not that demand for the manufacturing of clothing and the demand to buy those clothes. So growers have quite a bit stored on farm. You'll hear more about that just before heading off to Katanning for a wrap of the sheep market with Tracy Kilner at one o'clock today. Six past 12, ABC WA, this is the Country Hour and you are off to the Swan Valley now, about a half hour drive east of Perth, where table grape growers are saying it's time they were compensated for the work they do in maintaining the aesthetics of the region that attracts hundreds of millions of dollars for the tourism industry every year. Tony Kundad has been growing grapes in the region for almost 20 years. He says the new Swan Valley Planning Bill, which was passed through Parliament last week, is much of the same, restricting some landowners from subdividing in the hope the paddocks of lush green vines will be maintained to support tourism. He says if the state government really believes that, it's kidding itself. The intent, obviously, is to maintain some sort of ambience which will attract visitors. I think they think that if they restrict subdivision potential, um, it'll stay green. But that's probably a falsehood because as people get older, um, they're just not going to grow grapes. They'll just let the land go fallow. For you, does it restrict or does it reduce your land value? You've got just under five hectares there in the valley. I think it would because if you look at um, the current map of the Metropolitan Region Scheme, the Swan Valley sort of sits there like a little pocket ready to be swallowed up by a fire front because everywhere around it is development and we've been isolated from that by the 1995 Act, and obviously the new Act's going to continue that. So you can see that we've got subdivision 500 metres away from us. That land obviously was sold at premium prices for housing lots, whereas we're not allowed to have that happen here, purely to maintain the ambience. Do you feel like you're basically supporting that tourism industry and doing it for free? We are. Definitely, we are. We're just unpaid, glorified gardeners. I think the Swan Valley Planning Act exists for the benefit of not the grape growers, but for the benefit of business owners and tourism operators in the Swan Valley. Therefore, 
If the government does wish to maintain that revenue for the state, somehow they have to compensate or incentivise grape growers to maintain that ambience and rural atmosphere. It, without that, we're being unfairly dealt with. The City of Swan published the revenue in 2019 from tourism in, in the Swan Valley, which was $430 million. L last season, the Swan Valley only in table grapes, the value was only between 15 to $20 million. So the productive value of a grapevine is far less than its real value to the community. So somehow that's got to be given back to grape growers. You feel like that value, that true value, just isn't being recognised or, or realised by government? No, it's been taken for granted. It's definitely been taken for granted. In the original 1995 Act, one of the reasons they gave for maintaining the Swan Valley was the protection of viticulture, and they listed that 95% of table grapes were grown in the Swan Valley and that there was a um, government research facility in the Swan Valley which benefited the um, grape growers. Since that time, that Swan Valley Research Station has disappeared, been sold by government, and now it's being subdivided. Why can't existing landowners have, be, have, have that same opportunity? And if not, then somebody should compensate people for it. How long have you been in the Valley for, Tony? Since 1991. So just before that first piece of legislation in in 1995. But how have yeah. you seen land use and uh, land users change and evolve over that period of time? You've touched on it, but I imagine you've really seen that urban sprawl coming in. Yeah, especially in the areas surrounding um, the Swan Valley, Henley Brook, um, Caversham, Averley. That's all, you can see houses and lights. You can see, at night you can see lights from your place and, and you never used to be able to see that. Where do you think this situation is headed? If, if legislation remains the same, if this, as you say, this lack of value that is placed on the grapevines for their appeal to the eye, if, if any, more than anything, um, if this doesn't change, Tony, what's the future for growing grapes in the Swan Valley? How do you see that going? Well, the future for growing grapes in the Swan Valley is, is, is probably significantly diminished because of the demographic of growers. Most of us are reaching or close to retirement age. There'd be a handful that aren't. What we'll end up doing is pulling out our vines, leaving the land fallow, then there's no greenery, which ultimately will mean that people won't visit the Swan Valley. I, I think there's got to be a whole-of-government approach to it, which includes... Um, Department of Agriculture, Department of Water, uh, Planning, um, Environment and Tourism. Right now, they don't talk to each other. They just don't talk to each other. And also Treasury as well, because somehow money's got to be stumped up. If they want to keep that $430 million revenue, 
somebody's got to think about, okay, what do we have to put forward to maintain that revenue? You can't just expect people to do it for, for no reason. You've mentioned that there's an older demographic there that are the grape growers. Why yep. aren't the, the younger generation coming through? Because um, other areas are far cheaper to buy land and you have far more water available. Um, the newest plantings in Broome, 50 hectares got planted this year. Another 50 hectares are going in next year. That's 250 acres and they've got ample water. Um, the same mob, Frutico, have uh, planted another 50 hectares in Waruna this year and I think another 50 hectares next year. Again, water is available. It's just a matter of doing your sums and um, figuring out what's the cheapest way for me to grow the crop. You can still make a living off Table Grape Vineyard if you own your land and people own their land. You wouldn't buy land in the Swan Valley to grow table grapes. There's far better things to do with your money than that. Tony Kunded, he's from Valhalla Vineyard in the Swan Valley talking to Joe Prendergast. And as Tony was just touching on there, water is really a key issue too. And water access security is an essential part for keeping grape growers in the valley, if that's what state government is intent on doing. I thought you'd be keen to hear from the planning minister, Rita Safiotti, and her response to these concerns about the future of the table grape industry in the Swan Valley. But her office says she can't comment on viticulture or tourism. And as you heard earlier, the Swan Valley planning bill is now through the parliament and planning regulations are going to be drafted over the coming months to enact the provisions of these laws which are expected to take full effect by sort of mid-2021. And once those regulations are in effect, members will be appointed to the new Swan Valley Statutory Planning Committee and to the new Swan Valley Strategic Leadership Group. Quarter past 12. This is The Country Hour with Belinda Varaschetti on ABC Local Radio WA. News headlines at half past 12. Then it's off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Noel Pusey's going to be along. There's a lot to get through. A couple of lows off the coast in sort of northern parts of the state, bringing some big rains to some parts through the Kimberley, Pilbara interior into the goldfields and a little bit of rain on the way too for more southern parts of the state. Noel going through those details for you very shortly. First up, though, farm labour has certainly been in the headlines lately, firstly because there's currently a COVID-related shortage of workers prepared to pick fruit on Australian farms, and secondly because recent reports suggest some farmers are underpaying the workers they're using. Now, in a moment, you're going to hear an interesting proposal from the sister of a renowned unionist who played a crucial role championing for better pay and conditions for shearers. This is back in the 1960s and 70s. She thinks the unions should be playing a greater role today with farm labour issues. That's in a moment. First, though, I want you to take a look at the issue of a national licensing scheme for contract labour hire firms. If such a scheme ends up getting up and running, it may address some of the problems associated with slave labour on Australian farms. But as Dave Clawton reports, progress is slow. 
Three states have licensing schemes for contract labour firms, but a national scheme would probably replace those and fill in the gaps. If established, it would probably cover high-risk sectors, including horticulture, meat processing, as well as cleaning and security firms. Compliance would be monitored by the Fair Work Ombudsman. There'd be a directory of registered labour hire operators and fines for using unregistered companies. The problem is the state schemes haven't been that successful, according to Charles Cameron, CEO of the Recruitment, Consulting and Staffing Association of Australia and New Zealand. Take Queensland, for example, uh, over the uh, year to April 2020, there were only four prosecutions of labour hire providers in Queensland and only one prosecution of uh, a client of labour hire firms. So as much as we actually support the introduction of a national labour hire licensing scheme, it does need to focus upon the high-risk industries. Queensland focuses on high-risk. The only independent inquiry in Victoria focused and recommended it focus on high-risk and the Migrant Worker Task Force uh, recommended a labour hire licensing scheme for high-risk because we really need to focus the resources upon that cancer. Even if a national licensing scheme was established, it's likely there will always be a criminal element exploiting vulnerable people. Seasonal workers are being told to report any underpayment or abuse to the Fair Work Ombudsman. But that organisation hasn't had a lot of success in getting unpaid wages back because the contract labour hire companies disappear at the first sign of investigation. Charles Cameron says the focus should be on prosecuting farmers who were using dodgy labour hire firms. If we are finding it difficult to find and prosecute uh, these organisations, these providers, the contracting firms that uh, operate uh, uh, in a criminal way, then we need to target our attention upon the growers who engage them. My view is if there's no dodgy buyers, there's no dodgy suppliers. But we need to assist them to be able to identify. There needs to be a bigger fine then for, for growers. Like in Victoria, I understand... Is a half a million dollar fine for growers who are not using registered labour hire firms. I'm not necessarily sure we need to increase the fines yet. We just need to actually prosecute growers who turn a blind eye. I was speaking to somebody in the industry yesterday. They mentioned that uh, probably uh, around about 10% of growers uh, actually look for and use what we might describe as unlicensed providers or criminal providers because it gives them a competitive edge. 20% don't look very hard, so you might call that negligence, and the other 70% get undercut by those uh, disreputable growers. The Australian Taxation Office has a special phoenixing task force that tracks down people who routinely disappear if investigators come knocking and resurface later on. In one landmark case, a labour hire operator was convicted and sentenced to six months jail for fraud offences, while the financial advisor who helped facilitate the scheme also received a criminal conviction and an 18-month good behaviour bond. Despite some success by the ATO, the problem is still rampant and getting worse, according to Charles Cameron. The practice of phoenixing is apparently increasing rather than decreasing. I've been focusing on this issue for over 15 years, David, and I remember 15 years ago raising issues around phoenix activity and uh, the supply of workers in uh, buses with blacked-out windows. And it appears that we uh, haven't found the solution. So we're very much in support of any additional revenue, any further support, any revenue that can be issued to the Commonwealth Government and its agencies to find and actually prosecute these criminals because that's exactly what they are. 
With the pool of seasonal workers almost cut in half by COVID, farmers are desperate to find staff. That could lead some to use dodgy contract labour hire firms just to get the crop off. But that's no excuse, according to Paul Shoker, chair of the New South Wales Farmers Coffs Harbour branch. The mid-north coast of New South Wales is known for its rapidly growing blueberry industry, and it's been identified as a hotspot for illegal activity. He agrees that bigger fines for farmers who employ unregistered labour hire firms are a good idea. I think if farmers are doing the wrong thing, um, they ought to be penalised. Um, and, you know, we would welcome uh, additional compliance in that space. Um, and if that means increasing penalties, well, so be it. Uh, I don't think there is an excuse for uh, farmers or labour hire uh, to be underpaying workers. I think um, there's enough resources out there for um, operators to be aware of what their um, commitments are to the law. We encourage uh, farmers in particular to employ workers from reputable labour hire firms, but also you know, question their workers and what they're being paid. Uh, we know of quite a few instances where farmers are uh, paying what they believe is to be the full proper wage, uh, and that hasn't been passed on. So, you know, farmers do have that obligation as well to ensure that workers are being paid properly. So uh, are farmers part of the problem? You, you said there will always be farmers who are willing to employ or use unregistered contractors. So in, until that practice ends, then we will probably like to see exploitation continue. We see those sort of operators in every industry. You know, here uh, we see in the cleaning industry, hospitality and uh, farming sector, um, people who do the wrong thing. Um, it's a reflection of the wider society. Um, but, you know, it's in our best interest uh, to see those people and that business model which encourages that uh, to be broken up. But Paul Shoker says it's also a good time for seasonal workers and most are paid well for picking fruit. We are seeing a severe labour shortage throughout uh, the region um, and what that means is workers are able to dictate what farms they want to work on, what pay they want to receive but also what, what we would also encourage is foreign workers in particular that are coming here uh, to ensure that they have the correct working visas because what we are finding is people who are being exploited quite often are here on tourist visas without any working conditions. Well that's, that's a common practice isn't it? People here on tourist visas picking fruit. Yeah absolutely. Um, and obviously, you know, many farm groups have been advocating for quite some time for a dedicated agricultural visa. And I think that it strengthens the argument as well there. We, you know, we, we would like more workers to come into the country once uh, things return to normal and help pick uh, the fruit. But at the moment, we are restricted with the visa options we have. Paul Shoker, he's the chair of the New South Wales Farmers Coffs Harbour branch, ending that report by David Clawton. ABC WA on the Country Hour 23 past 12. Well, are there other solutions to these farm labour problems? Richard Hudson's been taking a look at this. And Richard, are there some things that farmers may not have considered at this point? Well, it depends who you talk to. So for the last few months, we've been hearing how so many farms are going to struggle to find enough workers to get their fruit to market. That's mainly because they're so reliant on foreign workers or backpackers. And then with the COVID travel restrictions, it's been pretty much impossible for a lot of farms to get hold of those workers. Uh, Caroline Barr is a, is a researcher. She's a retiree, lives in Bunbury. She's also an author. And she's been closely following our coverage of this. And she thinks farmers need to get more organised to get Australians to do the work. Well, I suggest that as um, happened in the shearing industry back in the uh, 60s, 70s, 80s, farm and, and orchard workers 
um, are skilled up either in through TAFE or through community projects uh, and, and agricultural colleges, for example, to upgrade or, or even commence their understanding of what needs to happen in, in various areas of fruit picking and other types of agricultural work. So they can form into teams and as in the shearing industry, with a cook with them and then go all over the, the state and possibly even the country uh, on a year-round basis with, a, with skilled-up teams. And all, all the farmers need to do is make sure they have very good accommodation. There's somewhere for their cook to um, organise good, nutritious food for them, comfortable uh, accommodation, which the farmers could then use for, uh, like, weekend accommodation through the rest of the year or whatever. So the farmers aren't waiting till everything's just about ripe and ready to pick or harvest, and they haven't got any workers. Well, uh, the theory all sounds very fine uh, like that, but I can just about hear some farmers saying out loud, listening along to that, look, why didn't I think of that? Does uh, Caroline have any credibility on these issues? Richard, what's her background? Well, I suppose you could say it's credibility via association. She feels qualified to talk on such matters because a family member has experience with the shearing industry and the unions. My um, brother, Gilbar, who was a shearer from 1948 to 1968. He gave it up when he ended up with a really... He'd done his backing with that, all that you know, hard work over 20 years. And so he then became very involved in the um, AWU and became the General Secretary in um, 1983 and went on to become the National Secretary of the AWU. And he brought in very, very different conditions and very greatly improved conditions um, for the shearers who were just sort of dumped in very, very shoddy accommodation with often without any um, hot running water and with very poor facilities. And um, that, that was revolutionised under Gill's watch. And I'm extremely proud of him. And I just think that the AWU should get their act together and improve the conditions. It, it takes me back to research I've done on the uh, South Sea Islanders in the early, uh, the late 1800, early 19th century with the setting up of the sugar industry in Queensland and the shocking conditions that were happening then. So are you saying a fresh approach is needed because do you feel as though farm workers who are fruit picking, for instance, are working in conditions that are not acceptable? Well, I mean, I haven't any personal proof of that. I can only go on reports, and I know you always hear the worst of it. But it's more the fact that there's so much in the press about, you know, we're going to be short of this and that at Christmas time because they can't get pickers. Well, this is something that they can't leave until the last minute. And the whole industry has to be more organised, and then they won't have that problem. And if they can't afford to, to pay good prices and provide good conditions... Four workers, they can't afford to be in that business. Caroline, recently we had a guy called Roger Farl on the Country Hour from a company called Frutico. He's a very large table grape grower and he's involved in growing other fruits as well. He's tried to recruit Australians. He said he's had some interest, but very few roll up. And then those who roll up, hardly any stay. And occasionally that some of those who've stayed have even complained about the conditions each of those complaints going to the appropriate authorities who have then said, 
that you have no case to be answered. You're paying the award rate and you are actually providing appropriate accommodation, etc., for these workers. We hear from a lot of farmers who say things like that. Their comeback is Aussies of today are just not prepared to do this sort of work because there's a culture that you'll be looked after even if you don't work. What's your response to that? Did anybody from the union actually go to view the conditions that that person worked in, including the accommodation and the wage and the general conditions? I mean, it's his word against the other person's word. And if there isn't a sort of a body involved to judge such things, I don't, I don't think that can be taken as, as gospel. And if it worked for the Shearers Union and it, it was overseen by the AWU, this is what needs to happen. It's not one single person turning up unsupported by peers, probably not with the skills he thought he may have to have when he finally got to the farm. But if this was organised and to ag colleges or TAFEs or whatever body providing good skill training for those people who could then perhaps having met peers in that forum uh, form these teams. They then feel empowered because the whole team arriving at this property, not just one single person. I suppose what some farmers are saying, though, is even when they are desperate and they provide good accommodation and they're prepared to pay above the ward rate, they're still not able to actually get Australians to come onto their farm to work, and that's why they're so reliant on itinerant workers. They shouldn't ever be at a desperate stage, Richard. This should be something that, as I said, is scheduled when they're doing their planning, you know, before they ever put the stuff in the ground. If people were organised into teams of workers to arrive on that property at such and such date, there wouldn't be a desperation because he'd know he, he or she or they had a team arriving with all the necessary skills and they would find on arrival good accommodation and have viewed in the contract that they're going to be well remunerated for their work. It wouldn't ever get down to desperation or argy-bargy and he said, she said. I suppose this year the part of the desperation has come about because of the extraordinary COVID circumstances, though, hasn't it? Yes, but that's because they've had the luxury of uh, people arriving from offshore for work, either as backpackers or as islander and, and, and people who will, who will work more cheaply. And they've, they've been able to rely on that too long. They've got to stop thinking in terms of these people coming to do the work because they're cheap. They've got to employ Australians who are skilled and who are in a team that they can have contracts made with many, many months before and know they're going to be back the following year if they're treated properly and paid properly. Bunbury-based retiree Caroline Barr with her thoughts on how to solve the farm worker shortage problem. She's basing her argument on what she says her brother Gil Barr did as head of the WA Union when he championed for changes to Shearer's pay and work conditions dating back to the 1960s. And Gil Barr later went on to become Australian Secretary of the Australian Workers' Union. I'm just thinking back to that conversation I had with Roger Fowle from Frutico about those Australian workers that turned up, just a handful of them, and uh, some of them actually complained about pay and conditions at his place and took it to um, WorkSafe. And he was eventually cleared after going through all the the rigmarole and WorkSafe said there was absolutely uh, nothing wrong with the pay. In fact, it was over the award. 
and the conditions on those properties where those people were working. This is the Country Hour 27 to 1. Ali Colvin's in the studio with an update from the newsroom. Thanks, Belinda. The federal government standing firm in the face of criticism of its industrial relations legislation. The union movement and Labor have vowed to oppose the wide-ranging bill which was introduced to Parliament today. The Coalition wants to give the Fair Work Commission the power to allow COVID-affected businesses to negotiate deals with employees that leave staff worse off, off for up to two years. A broom man says he's shaken up but OK after a near miss with an unidentified shark off Cable Beach yesterday morning. Sam Heseltine was surfing off the beach when he felt a bump and realised his board had been bitten by a shark. Rangers have closed the beach. The state government has officially opened a $5.2 million campground with boating facilities at Lake Kepwari in WA Southwest. The site near Collie has been transformed from an open-cut coal mine to a water-based tourism hub featuring areas for boating, swimming, water skiing and camping. It's part of a $23.3 million investment in infrastructure for parks and forests in the Collie area. Thanks, Belinda. There'll be more news at one. Thanks for that, Ellie. 27 to 1. You're part of the Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. Great to have you along this afternoon. Do you know who Ed Husick is? Well, you should. He is the Federal Opposition Agriculture and Resources spokesperson. And he's had a few interesting things to say about the, well, for for one example, about the livestock export industry. So who is he? How does he feel about the key agricultural industries in this country? And what is his vision? You'll meet him and hear his thoughts shortly here on the Country Hour. And also Federal Trade Minister... No one's picking up his calls in China still, and he's getting quite frustrated with the whole situation. More on those trade relationships between Australia and China shortly here on the Country Hour. Right now, it's off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Noel Pusey is with you this afternoon. Noel, do you want to start in northern and eastern parts where those couple of lows coming in and bringing quite a bit of rain to some parts anyway? Sure, Shovel India. We um, we have a tropical low that across the coast, um, not far from Bijadanga, uh, on the just southwest of Broome on the on the coast there, about nine o'clock this morning. It's it's uh, yeah, definitely a low and uh, some heavy rainfall over parts to the north of Broome, uh, Lombardine in particular, and a couple other places through there as well. As as the bands, the spiral bands around it um, move inland, um, quite overcast conditions, some heavy rainfall through there, and other. 50 to 150 millimetres over the next sort of 12 to 24 hours as it contra- tracks to the southeast towards, um, or to the southwest of Balga Hills in a small settlement called Kir- Kirikara uh, in the uh, parts of the interior there. And uh, it, it it sort of leaves a, a track that um, another tropical low to the northwest, uh, now, now currently to the east of Christmas Island, but um, it looks like it's going to track fairly quickly to the southeast, uh, remain a tropical low. The conditions aren't really conducive for it to develop into a tropical cyclone but still it's a speed of movement uh, and it will cross uh, likely to cross the coast uh, somewhere probably east of Port Hedland uh, sort of during Friday and uh, Friday night most likely I think but uh, it again it, it tracks almost in the same sort of direction in the end and ends up uh, in the northern interior over the next day or two after that uh, again heavy rainfall associated with that as well some thunderstorm activity too and uh, 
on the southern side of the low, even though it's not a tropical cyclone, there'll be a period of strong and gusty winds uh, as it crosses the coast uh, and before it starts to weaken a little bit through there uh, into, into just a rain-bearing sort of uh, low through there. But, uh, yeah, there, there's, there's some... some uh, Decent rainfall on the way for areas through the uh, the West Kimberley and the Central Eastern Pilbara over the next uh, few days, and of course um, it'll it'll affect um, um, pastures and stock through there. But again, the rainfall is probably welcome as long as it's not uh, too much in the way of flooding rain. But there are flood watches current for that area for the next uh, few days as well. All right. What sort of falls? So yesterday we were sort of hearing it could be 150 to up to 200 mils in some parts. Is that still the uh, case? That, that's right, yeah. Um, there's a number of places I'm sure that uh, Richard will go through shortly with the rainfall, so I won't steal his thunder, but uh, look, there's, there's still another 150, 200 mils of rain possible east of Caratha through the the uh, sort of Port Hedland region along that coastal area there and also further inland towards Marble Bar and Telfer over the next few days. So I'm sure it will have an effect on uh, on uh, road conditions and also yeah, for the, uh, the pastures through there. But um, yeah, good rainfall. Uh, they'll need that uh, in the coming months, I'm sure, but um, hopefully it won't cause too much damage to, to, uh, to um, infrastructure anyway. And then, Noel, yeah. moving into the Southwest Land Division, there's a little bit of rain about, um, in some parts anyway, for you know some days over the next, between now and the rest of the week. But, I mean, not talking 100 mils or anything, but sort of maybe 5 to 10 with some of those thunderstorms. Can you talk through what's going to happen for the rest of the week? Yeah, well, well, we've got a deep trough lying near the west coast at the moment, so fairly hot conditions right right on the coast and just inland through there as well. Um, there is some instability too and some showers and storms at the moment, um, perhaps uh, through this sort of Albany, uh, Bremer Bay, Noanga up sort of area at the moment um, on the uh, on the radar and the satellite picture, but uh, there's a chance today of thunderstorm activity right through most of the, um, the South Land Division uh, t- and uh, in particular, uh, possibly severe stuff may develop this afternoon through the northeastern wheat belt into the um, central west district. So places like uh, Morrowa and Karnama, maybe Payne's Find in the um, the um, Gascoigne, and then also down through Dowell and New Southern Cross, Muck and Budin. That sort of area there, a chance of some uh, some some sort of. Severe thunderstorms, so there could be gusty with a one or two heavy falls through that in there as well. But um, there is a risk of some thunderstorm activity through other parts today. But in particular tomorrow, the, the trough um, extends a little further south, and we, we see that thunderstorm activity extend right down uh, towards the uh, southwest district, particularly in the western parts there. So, um, and conditions look like they could be quite gusty at times, uh, particularly. Uh, during the morning uh, and uh, the afternoon tomorrow and uh, some severe thunderstorms are possible even through the Perth metro area but also including uh, western parts of the Wheat Belt and uh, Central West District and all the way down through the Western Great Southern so um, a reasonable area probably to the west of West of Wagen and Arigen um, down even into uh, into northern parts of the Southwest District so Harvey Collie, that sort of area there, could pick up uh, some, some thunderstorm activity too and maybe 5 to 10 mils and some decent gusts. So unfortunately it will affect probably sort of people still uh, still in the in the sort of harvester area there, but um, hopefully it won't be enough to affect too much in the way of um, op- operations for them anyway. And for warnings this afternoon, then not? Yeah, the, the warnings, yeah. Flood, flood, flood watches and warnings are current for that, uh, the Kimberley and the sort of East Pilbara area there into the interior. Uh, we have uh, strong wind warnings current for... The west coast south of uh, the sort of Lanceland and then uh, along the south coast all the way to the SA border today and uh, similar sort of 
area along the south coast tomorrow, and uh, we'll start to see some, some gusty winds along the Kimberley coast as well as the uh, the uh, the low moves in into westerlies, and then we'll see the next one start to have an effect later on uh, tomorrow too. Noel, thank you for going through all those details. Appreciate that. Cheers. This is the Country Hour 20 to 1. On to those rainfall figures. This is looking back over the last 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning. What have you got, Richard? Yeah, again, most of the rain in the Kimberley, some good falls as well. A bit of hit and miss, though. Some locations had pretty much nothing. That was up to 9am. But Anna Plains had 87 very welcome millimetres, Bedford Downs Airstrip 11, Bidjidanga 74, Billaluna 10, Broome at the airport 73, Country Downs 103, Curtin Airport 58, Signet Bay 165, Dampier Downs Airstrip 68, Debisa 50, Derby Mains Road 82, Drysdale River Station only 5, Ellenbray 13, Gibb River 7, Halls Creek Airport 24, Columbaroo 28, Kimbolton 63, Cunanara at the airport 16, Lansdowne 19, Leopold Downs 18, Liveringa Station 51, Lombardina Airport had 111, Mandora 18, Margaret River Airstrip 15, Marion Downs 12, Mullabulla Airstrip 25, Mount Amherst 19, Mount Krause 5, Mount Winifred 9, um, Morida 48, Napier Downs 41, Nita Downs 58, Old Mornington Homestead 11, Port Smith 65, Ruby Plains 25, Sins Creek 12, Sophie Downs 20, Theta 13, Udiella 82, Warman 7, West Roebuck 75, Winjana Gorge 39, Wyndham Airport had 14, Yampi Sound 55, Yulumbu 11. So pretty good soaking in the Kimberley, basically. And then in the Kilbra, in the Pilbara region, uh, Caratha Airport had 24, Pardue 16, Yarry 20, and then in the Gascoigne, Challa 11, Kudari 8, and the Murchison had 7. And then in the interior, Goldfields, Eucla, and out on the islands, no rainfall reported at all. And then in the southwest land division forecast districts, uh, Central West, Dudawar had nine, Gutha West 11, Mullawar six, and Woolgarong had 26. And then for the rest of the southwest land division, nothing more than one mil at all. But we certainly have been getting a few texts and uh, phone calls from people who were listening to what Caroline Barr had to say. Yeah, Caroline had a few things to say about how to solve the farm labour problems. Um, you heard from her earlier in the hour. She was basically sort of talking about how you could get groups of people, uh, Australians together, train them up and sort of move around the country as the season sort of came on for different fruits and vegetables or grain, whatever it might be, just to get all the harvest work done. Some of those texts coming through, uh, Marklin Ongarup says, Caroline solved all the labour shortage problems. My dog's dad's brother brother is a lawyer, but I don't give out law advice, says Michael. This from Andrew regarding the Labor discussion. A significant percentage of today's shearers from New Zealand, the wool industry would not survive without them. Our business supplies over award wages, accommodation plus, almost impossible to get Aussies to work in the bush. We grow product for the global market, the level playing field, and need open access to skilled global labour. Jacko says unions are leeches. If you don't like the job on the farm, move on. There's lots of ag jobs. 
Uh, Brad says the person on the radio regarding farm labour has absolutely no idea, not in the real world. And this from John, who's a farmer in Darkin. Maybe if Coles and Woolies stop screwing the producers on price, the producers could offer better conditions and wages. Then the consumer can help out their fellow Australian worker. Just some of the text coming through, 0448 922 604. Well, it's an interesting suggestion. I know there are some TAFE courses which are giving people guidance to get the right skills and experience to work on farms. It'll be interesting to see how many people they have showing some interest at the moment. But Alex is a retired farmer who now lives in Nwangarup. Alex, I gather you've actually got a bit of experience working at TAFE in this sort of thing. What did you notice? Well, when, and when this was some years ago, uh, I was working with Curtin University and Curtin and uh, C.Y. O'Connor TAFE ran some training courses using the Cunton Ag School facility. And uh, we got uh, probably about eight or nine applicants. We had um, employment agencies turn up at the end of the course. We had out of that probably one, maybe two, uh, were suitable to work. The others just didn't want to work. They quit halfway through the course or uh, just didn't bother to show up sometimes. Um, and it, it, they just... Australians, the, the, the people that are working, have, have people who've got jobs are working and enjoying it. The people who don't want to work, you're kicking a dead horse. The Australian youth that does not want to work does not want to work. And out there in the country there is, there is, there is work. And not every farmer is a crook, believe me. It's, um, I just don't know. I, and just to highlight the point, my, my grandson is doing his PhD in engineering at UWA. And he and his mates have gone off to manage them up to pick fruit. So <laughs> really and truly, they're the ones that are switched on and ready to roll. But these other ones, you're wasting your time. You're better off to concentrate on getting more overseas labour to come in here to, to work. And I'll make another point too. If you go to Europe, they love the Australian kids over there working in bars and everywhere else because they work. So where are you at? Do you have any suggestions as to how you could motivate Australians to do this sort of work, though, Alex? <laughs> my, my, the, the idea of allowing them to keep their job start and, and, and have to subsidise their wages is totally counterproductive, in my point of view. They're just going to, they're going to have that. They don't. They won't won't want to work. The, the only answer I can see, really and truly, um, yeah, it doesn't, probably doesn't sound too nice. But if you get hungry enough, you you you, you go find some way of catching yourself a feed, don't you? Um, and um, yeah, it's it's the work is there. The incentives to do I don't know because the, the culture we've created in this country over the last thirty years. But really, I, I just don't know. But really and truly, there's a lot of kids in there living four and five in a house, uh, doing nothing, and don't don't desire to do nothing. I mean, you you, t- you take their doll, uh, multiply that by five, put it into a house which you can rent for three or four hundred bucks a week. You're doing well, aren't you? Absolutely. Well, Alex, thanks for expressing your view. It's an interesting uh, conundrum, isn't it? One point, I suppose, that Caroline Barr mentions is we have established a norm now where our farms are very reliant on these itinerant workers. And when I say itinerant, as in workers who are from overseas, so they're relying on using workers who are are not living here and they're not Australians. They're, They're only here temporarily. 12 to 1, ABC WA, this is the Country Hour. You are off to Katanning just before the news at 1 for the results of the Katanning sheep market. First, though, he entered the parliament 10 years ago and following Joel Fitzgibbon's decision to quit the front bench last month, 
is now the opposition's agriculture and resources spokesman. So who is Head Ed Husick and what's he going to do for the farming and mining sectors? Well, Cass Sullivan sat down with the Sydney-based MP and asked him if he was keen to stick around or was simply keeping the seat warm. I would very much love the chance to stay in the portfolio. A lot of livelihoods have been generated out of Mm -hmm. the work that's been done in agriculture and resources. I really enjoy it. I've been very grateful for the the generous amount of time that people in the sector have given to me so far. I'm listening, learning, and I I really enjoy it. And you can't fake enthusiasm, frankly. When your name was first put up, there are a lot of people in the live export trade who were concerned about comments you've made in the past, Mm -hmm. um, statements you've made in the House opposing the trade. Mm -hmm. Do you think that Australia should be exporting animals live? I think it's, I want people to make livelihoods. I want people to make, be able to generate wealth for the nation and be able to generate jobs, but you can't do it treating animals in a bad way. And I've said that up front and uh, I'm not a fake and I won't you know, I can't walk away from be- from the comments that I've said in, in the past. But having said that, I do acknowledge and respect the fact that there's been mighty improvements in animal welfare, particularly around cattle. You've seen some huge improvements there. And sheep has been, like in terms of the, the live trade in sheep, has improved. Though there have been some pretty bad examples in the last you know, 12 months that we've seen, but there's been improvement. And So I- it was a yes or no question? Yes, if it can be done in a way that doesn't treat animals and their welfare badly. And I don't think I'm alone on it because I think people in the sector too feel just as strongly about it as I do. So uh, I have said, you know, uh, in times past we should transition out of it because I was genuinely concerned there was no improvement in sight. But, uh, you know, I think in politics you've got to look at what's actually happening, what are the stats saying, how's the treatment occurring, and, and there has been improvements. But, you know, that's not like an infinite pass. Like, if, if, if treatment is bad uh, of animals, there, there will be a public outcry, and I think the sector doesn't want to see that as much as the public doesn't want to see that. Your critics have already fired off that you're an inner-city MP, perhaps don't have experience of the, the agriculture sector... I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but as you do get your head around the portfolio, what are the main issues that you're coming to understand Australian farmers are facing at the moment? I think uh, I've got to first, because there's been a lot that you've thrown at me there. So first is, you know, it's not a condition of being a minister for health that you're a doctor, right? So, you know, what you in representative democracy, you'll get people elected from all walks of life and they're going to have to take up responsibility uh, in areas that they may not have you know, necessarily been in the past. What's important is that the person in the role respects the portfolio. I certainly do. I'm willing to engage. I certainly am. Uh, wants to learn, absolutely, and wants to see the best policies around that can advance the growth of the sector and the people that benefit from it. I'm 100% up for that and um, will be judged on my record in regard to that. In terms of the big issues, there's a lot of big issues in this space. The biggest one, obviously, you can't turn your eyes from is trade. You know, agriculture has earned a lot of money out of trading with China. Some of our biggest exports right now, you know, in terms of wool, barley, wine, beef, seafood, in one way, shape or other, have been affected by our 
our deteriorating relationship with China. Um, we need to work out how we improve that relationship and who else we can ship those products to. And I don't feel like there's a lot of energy being applied by my counterpart in government and David Littleproud. In fact, he tried to blame companies or exporters for exporting solely to China when they were paying premium prices and they so wanted demand. So what would demand. you do? How would you open up new markets? Well, uh, the reality is I think that the pressure's on to diversify, right? Um, if you're asking me for a solution right now, in the absence of having heads of mission, Austrade, all the power of government, which is effectively that that the answer that would require the work of those people. The government needs to step up and now they're in government. They're the ones who, you know, want the big desks and the big paychecks. They've got to come up with the big answers to the big problems. Ed Husick, as Labor's spokesman on agriculture and resources, have you got any suggestions about how the government could be better placed to help Australian farmers recruit workers for the forthcoming harvest? Again, the government's talked a big game and we're not really seeing much work through, be it from relocation allowances that don't seem to be drawing many people in. Yes, but I asked what you would do. No, well, no, I'm uh, with the greatest of respect, our, our job as an opposition is to hold the government to account to the plans that they've announced. Uh, the thing is, they've made a lot of plans and a lot of announcements that haven't really come up with much. They say, for example, they've got a lot of people that they can bring in through the um, Pacific Islands. Um, we've got, you know, tens of thousands, apparently. We haven't seen many um, come through. We've apparently been told they would say that's that the state's responsibility. We've been told, we've been told that uh, these relocation allowances that they announced for job seeker, uh, people on job seeker or on, on government support, that hasn't really amounted to much. They do say, you're right to observe, that there's a lot that the states should do. But from what I can um, gather, the states have stumped up a lot, not just trying to attract people to regions, but put their own allowances up uh, as well. They had an admin meeting last week, first time in 10 months, brings all together the government ministers from across the country in agriculture, what came out of it. Not much, because if there was something, I'm sure David Littleproud would be out quicker than you can blink to announce what he's been able to secure. What be would it on, Labor do differently? Again, my role, where, where we're at in the political cycle, you know, we, we'll stump up with policies going into an election so people will know full well what we stand but for. If you've got a good idea, but, don't you think the government could but, do with it? Well, I'm not also about coming up with ideas that they pinch. Labor's Agriculture Spokesman Ed Husick with Kath Sullivan. Five to one. And Ed Husick just uh, pointing out there that he thinks the biggest issue facing the farm sector is trade and the deteriorating relationship with China and the fact he thinks, well, the government really needs to step up its game in this area. And it does sound like the Federal Trade Minister, Simon Birmingham, is getting quite frustrated with the Chinese government, which is still refusing to answer his calls. China has an obligation to communicate as part of the China-Australia Free Trade Agreement, otherwise known as CHAFTA. And in the Senate this morning, the minister gave an update on the China dispute and announced the World Trade Organisation is now officially involved. The Australian government has become increasingly concerned about a series of trade, disruptive and restrictive measures implemented by the Chinese government on a wide range of goods imported from China and that these disruptions have increased significantly in recent months. The Chinese government has publicly stated that these disruptions are due to legitimate trade remedies, biosecurity measures as well as non-compliance with other technical standards. In the view of the Australian government, the targeted nature of Chinese government measures on Australian goods raises concerns about China's adherence to the letter and spirit of both its chapter and its WTO obligations. 
Australia has raised these concerns with Chinese officials on multiple occasions in both Canberra and in Beijing and has asked the Chinese government to engage on these matters at officials and ministerial levels. The Chinese government has consistently spoken about its commitment to open trade and the multilateral trading system, as well as to its free trade agreements, including JAFTA. All WTO members are expected to conduct their trading relationships in a manner consistent with their international obligations. We have raised our concerns about the Chinese government's measures in the WTO, including most recently at the 25 November 2020 meeting of the WTO Committee on Trade in Goods. We raised at that committee our concerns in respect to barley, to wine, meat and dairy establishments, live seafood exports, logs, timber, coal and cotton. Only yesterday, the Chinese government, through its customs agency, the General Administration of Customs of the PRC, notified Australian agricultural officials of a further suspension of a meat processing facility, Miramast, in Caboolture. The Australian government has raised its concerns with the Chinese government's anti-dumping and countervailing duties investigations into imports of Australian barley and has expressed our view that the Chinese government's processes, analysis and findings were inconsistent with WTO rules. That is the Federal Trade Minister Simon Birmingham speaking in the Senate this morning. Three minutes to one to Katanning now for the results of the Katanning sheep market and about 17,000 sheep and lambs were pinned this morning. Tracy Kilner's been keeping an eye on the market, just waiting for her to... Put her report through. It was about 17,000 sheep and lambs penned and hopefully uh, just before the news at one today, hoping to get the results of the sheep market for you. Any minute now, coming through. And here now, Tracy's got the details. Heavier mutton remained firm on last week, selling to $189, only fluctuating on quality, while lightweights and stores eased on competition. Lamb prices fluctuated with demand and quality, seeing new season heavy lambs up $10, topping at $178, while air freight weight lambs eased on competition and the lightweight lambs gained with keen interest from graziers. The new season lightweight lamb sold from $72 to $79 a head. New season lambs, including merinos, saw air freight weights under 16 kilos carcass weight sell from $100 to $115 to processors and from $70 to $116 to feeder buyers. Live export paid $103 to $121 a head. The heavier under 18 kilos carcass weight lambs sold from 112 to 130 to processors, 115 to 131 to feeder buyers and 110 to 132 to export. The trade weight lambs sold for 130 to 166 dollars and a small selection of heavy lambs made from 166 to 178 dollars a head. Young Merino ewes sold to processors for $95 to $182 depending on weights, while restockers paid from $50 to $130 depending on frame and quality. The heavy ewes over 30 kilos carcass weight remained steady at $553 cents per kilo, carcass weight selling from $172 to $189, while the lighter 24 to 30 kilos carcass weight eased, selling from $130 to $180, medium weight and good boning ewes weighing under 24 kilos eased, selling for $90 to $150 a head, while the lightweight ewes fell with less demand and quality, selling from $47 for very small poor conditioned ewes up to $90 to processors. Tracy, thank you for that. It is time for the news. One o'clock.
You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.